God bless you. Welcome. Amos chapter 5 and 6. Seek God and live. So I will welcome those who are online, those who will watch later, those who, of course, are here tonight. And Amos chapter 5 and 6, it's his third sermon. And by this time, he's losing people. He, uh, people don't want to hear what Amos has to say. And uh, I guess that would be the case for everyone who doesn't want to hear uh, the message, the kind of message that Amos has been delivering. It hasn't been very, uh, let's say, fluffy and nice. It's been upfront, bold, and fearless. And um, he's talking about our day and age. If, if you think of Scripture, think of not only of the time in which Amos spoke about, but also the time of Jesus, the first century, and also our time. And so when we think of Amos, think of those three things. His time, the first coming of Jesus, and right before the second coming of Jesus would be the applicable, uh, um, applicable place to put this in. I was just looking at some of the things going on in our world, and I thought, well, what a world. U.S. national debt, $33 trillion. I couldn't even calculate it. I was trying to, trying to bring a picture of how many, if you stack up, you know, a billion dollars, and, and how about a trillion dollars? It's, it's incalculable. I mean, I think they, at some point they just make up numbers because there's no way to calculate all this. But yet, it is the debt. It is the national debt. Roughly, the value of the economies of four other countries combined. Five other countries combined, I should say. Um, it seems no end in sight. And of course, we keep sending money for wars. And that money that goes out, every dollar that goes out, it, it raises the inflation in this country. So as much as we you know, would love to help other people, other countries that are suffering, and the U.S. always has been at the forefront of that, uh, it's also been at the forefront of funding a lot of wars. And that causes not only wars and death, but also tremendous amount of problems in the country. None like today. Um, anybody who this guy is? Not a good guy, but at least he's telling the truth about this. Jamie Dimon, he says that be prepared. What's that? Correct. He's a big, big wig in the banking world. He manipulates a lot of things, silver and gold, you know, that kind of thing, manipulating money. He would be the, 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 the we would call him today the, uh, well, in the days of Jesus, he would have been known as the money changer. You've been a money changer. It's just, you know, it's exchange money for another. He believes the U.S. rate, just the federal rate, the fund rate, would be about 7%, and we can't be ready for that because what that means is not mortgage rate 7%. That's already above that. Mortgage rates will be over 10%. Now, there's so many houses, so many people. I mean, if you look at the rate of people that bought houses on an adjustable mortgage a couple of years ago, which, you know, if you've got a two- to three-year adjustable mortgage rate, it's due about now or next year. Uh, people are going to have to refinance all those homes that they bought at a top premium level uh, at 3%. Now they have to refinance at 10%. People are going to turn the keys in and say, I can't, especially investors who thought they were going to be able to rent these houses. So it, we're heading toward a very, very difficult economic situation with inflation, as you can tell, has not been curtailed at all. The war in Ukraine, it's a lot, has, has a lot to do with this. The, the, the millions of millions of dollars that have been sending to Ukraine and to their businesses and were funding their, their uh, um, salary of all these generals and people in the government. Just absolute insane. 
and, and then there's no holding back. I mean, I can show you a list of uh, all these. If, if you don't like the Democrats, well, I can show you the list of Republicans who voted to send all this money to Ukraine. So it's not one better than the other. We're going to talk about that tonight, too, because on the one hand, we always think the other person or the other group or whoever they are are worse sinners than we are. But the reality is, in terms of the nature of sin, we're all in the same boat, said Noah. We're all in the same together. Um, you know, but the world is also in deep trouble. When you got the president of, or the prime minister of Canada, I should say, and the president of Ukraine uh, applauding a Nazi and giving him credence that he was, he was a good guy and that he, he helped exterminate the Jews, you got a problem. You got a problem. And, and, the, and actually, Canada as a whole government allowed this man, I think he's 90 something years old already, and um, a Nazi guy from Ukraine. And standing ovation and a picture of him when he was a little bit younger. And Canada's in big trouble. Not only for this, but you could see the, 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 the resemblance of society and what the government wants to do in Canada. It's, of course, support people that have hatred for other people. Now, here in California, we're going to get into Amos, by the way. I'm just setting the tone, just setting the temperature. Here in California, actually, Chino Valley School District, not too far from us. There's a big legal issue right now. I don't know if you knew that. But the San Bernardino School District, what in, the, well, in this case, Chino Valley Unified School District, CVUSD, CVUSD, it is um, going to court against the state of California because Chino Valley School District wants to inform the parents that their children, any children of any age, if they're going through some kind of identification as transgender, and they are going and getting counseling from counselors, they need to be notified. Chino Valley School District voted unanimously that this should be a thing that they do, that no matter teachers, counselors, whoever they are, have to inform the parents. State of California said, no, you have no right to tell the parents anything about their children and what they're transitioning to because it will harm them and it'll threaten them because people will will basically will retaliate against these young kids because they are so vulnerable at that age i mean they agree with that and yeah, they're vulnerable why would you make them do that and so they are trying to fill an injunction that the chino valley school district cannot under any circumstance inform the parents about the students requesting to be identified and as a different gender so not only the counseling, but if a child comes in and says, I want to be identified as so-and-so, the Chino Valley School District says, we'll inform your parents if they haven't been notified yet. California says, no, you have no right to do so because that will just incite violence against the kids. Of course, that's done in the name of saving kids, but it's in the name of taking away your kids. That's really what they're at the heart of the matter. So why are we talking about this? Because Amos says, when you see the nation going this way, and it wasn't just United States 2023. It was Israel 750 B.C., by the way. It was Israel 750 B.C. Perhaps not everything matches up correctly, but the overall principle of a, a decadent society, a society that doesn't care about their, the poor, didn't care about children, didn't care about women, didn't care about any one of these social issues. It was a society that is headed for judgment, headed for judgment. And here comes this minor prophet, so we're majoring on the minors, by the way, majoring on the minors. Well, we, why do we call them minor prophets? The length of the book, that's right, has nothing to do with their message. It's a sad thing, it's a sad thing that we name the minor prophets because people tend to think that way. 
Oh, I'm going to go to the major ones. But the minor ones have so powerful message. In fact, when you read them all, in fact, I have a little bit of a little screen here. It's where all the prophets and where they lined up. Amos lines up right around the time of Hosea, right around the, just after Jonah, right around the time of Isaiah, just a little short before that, in the time of Micah. Very powerful man of God that God used, 13 of them, to bring about the minor messages, the minor messages. Now, of course, the major ones will be like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, right? But the minor ones are just as important. They spoke in the name of God. They spoke, God spoke through them to a generation that was so hard-hearted, so difficult to reach. And I get the feeling we all agree that our generation or our society has become really hard-hearted. They just some seem to really want to get it. Not that just don't get it, don't want to get it. And they're very happy with the way they live. And they think nothing ever will happen to them. Well, 750 B.C., here comes Amos, and he has a message for the whole nation. In fact, we know from his writings that the message came when he was tending the sheep. God illuminated him and gave him a message. We learned that in chapter 1. And that message came via a vision. Now, whether I told you whether he sought letters and he remembered the letters and was able to preach it and then it was written down later, or whether he supernaturally can know these words and be able to preach them, but they were certainly written after, after, uh, after he preached them. And we have them in this book. It was a supernatural message. And what was his occupation? Everybody know he was a prince of Israel. He was a prince. He was a king. He was a shepherd. The lowest of the lowest. A nobody. A nobody in the world's eyes. He didn't make enough money doing that, so he had to do what? Yeah, <laughs> he had to take care of trees, sycamore trees, which gave this little wild fig, you know, that which he's going to talk about. And um, he comes to the nation and tells the nations that they are sinful and that Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, uh, has come and he has known their sin, not just their general sin, but their particular sin, their personal sin, which is a lot different, isn't it? When we speak of sin, people are oftentimes very, I guess, very much okay with it, perhaps, if you think of general sin, you know. Oh, we've all sinned. Yes, we've all sinned. But when we talk about individual sins, when we talk about personal sins, that like God is interested not only in the general sins, but in the personal sins, he's very straightforward and personal. In fact, he called the women of his day, the rich women of the days, what did he call them? Cows. Didn't go too well in his message. That's why people were leaving. He couldn't get anybody to come. Cows of Bashan. And of course, he wasn't meaning their size. He wasn't talking about their looks. He was referring to how they were so wealthy and rich, uh, kind of like what we see today in our world, so many luxury things that they want. And they were, these women were only wanting the best, and luxury was the only thing they were concerned about. Forget society. They just wanted to have their own uh, I, I would say cake and eat it too. They wanted to have their society, but they wanted to have their wealth. And they forced their husbands or, or, you know, ladies, you know this. They manipulated their husbands on how to get more luxury goods by oppressing the poor. And their husbands, well, you know, they were very weak men. They did whatever their wife said. And then they went out and oppressed the poor to get the money so they can keep funding their wives' lifestyle. Well... I can tell you what, I've been around ministry for a while. That happens in society. That happens in the world. It happens in the church. It happens in the church. Many times I've seen it. And 
here comes Amos, and he lays bare their sin. Do you think he was popular? Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1, he begins with this message. Hear this. Why? Because probably he was keeping, uh, having trouble keeping the people's attention. Hear this. And he begins with not a vision, per se, not a statement. Frank, if you can read the first five verses, that would be great for us. First five verses. Listen to what the prophet says. Okay, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. That's right. So it's a lamentation. What is a lamentation? Well, just like the book of Lamentation, it was a mourning. It was sort of a funeral service. It's a book like Jeremiah's Lamentation. This part of Amos is like the book of Lamentation. And it's interesting because not only, this is a very important thing. Why is it a lamentation? I believe because if you're going to expose people's sins, and you're going to talk about the nation's sin, you need to be prepared and be ready to do something that not a lot of people will do, is to weep for the nation, is to weep for that society. Many people bellyache. I can tell you, I can tell you ministries that would bellyache up and down all day, but I can count on my hands the ministries and the men of God that I know that would weep over the people that they just talked about, weep over the sins of society. It's not much done in this day and age. We bellyache a lot. We say how terrible it is. But do we go home and have great, great mourning for the nation? I'm not saying have great compassion for the sins of the nation. I'm talking about the people that are being led into astray and into captivity. So hardened against God, against the God of Israel. So this is, Amos was prepared to do both. He was willing to call out the sin, but he was willing to weep for the nation. I remember a man named David Wilkerson. He went to be with the Lord not, not, not too long ago. And David Wilkerson would give the most powerful, powerful, strong messages. People didn't like him because he was strong. You know, he would be the one that would call the ladies the cows of Bashan for good reason. But at the same time, he would spend hours and hours praying and praying for the salvation of uh, New York City, people that he ministered to in that city. He would pray hard. He would pray long uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard of the uh, uh, missionary groups in the, in the 1700s that would go out and share the gospel. They were from Germany. And they would spend hours and hours. And Actually, they had a prayer chain. They had a prayer chain for, I think it lasted 100 years, that they would pray for the salvation of Europe. And um, these are the kind of people that we don't have today in our society. Yeah, there might be people to call out sin. But how many people call out sin and then go home and weep? for the people that, just, that they just talked about. Amos is willing to do both. Look at verse 2 again. Fallen, it's like a virgin, like a virgin that has fallen, and there's none to raise her up. The lamentation 
against Israel is that it's like a young woman who has fallen, like a young girl who has been forsaken. Her purity, her purity has been taken away. She is forsaken now. She has been left alone, and there's nobody to get up. She has no strength to get up, and nobody can rise her up. This is a terrible situation, if you ever consider that in your mind. This is how God sees the nation, how Anna sees the nation. You know, Jesus saw the nation the same way. If you look at the New Testament, what did Jesus see? As he comes over the Mount of Olives on the triumphal entry, everybody's excited. It's a Passover time. It's a feast. People are praising God and giving thanks to God, but they're going to reject Jesus eventually. And because they didn't accept Jesus, Jesus weeps over them. And he cries, he weps over the city, and he predicted that the city will be judged, will be destroyed in 70 AD. Eventually it happened. This is Matthew 23. And because of their rejection, they would not see him again until they'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that is for a future time, and and the Jews will have to cry out to Jesus, and he will come for them. We're told that in the book of Zechariah and Revelation. That's for a different topic. While he was crying out, he told the people, don't weep for me. When he was going to the cross, weep for yourself, he told them. People were weeping for Jesus, but Jesus says, no, I wept for you. And you should weep for yourself because what's coming is worse than you ever thought. Jeremiah did the same thing. He wept over the nations. But he sees a series of visions here. This is an important thing. One of the reasons he sees this vision is because people are going to want to go to places to escape certain things. And they went to the cities. And at the time of Amos, people went to the cities to look for work, to look for, you know, the happening towns. And they went to Bethel and Gilgal. And they went to Samaria. And they went to Beersheba. They went to all these places to kind of get away from the rural areas and to go into the big cities. You know why people do that. It happened in our our nation many, many times. And people wanted to escape the big, the the, the rural places for the big cities. Well, one, protection, uh, economic reasons. There's jobs there. Second is protection, military security. Uh, there's more military security in big cities, so people live, they leave the country and they go into the big cities. And the religious centers were there, Gilgal, Bethel, Beersheba. And so people had it all. They had economic security, they had military security, they had religious security. And God says, don't. Don't go to Bethel. That means more ways than one. Don't go to Bethel, says in verse 5. Don't go up there. That's not talking about Redding, California, but it would apply. Don't go up to Bethel. Don't go up there to Beersheba. Don't go up to Gilgal. Don't trust in these places. These places are going to leave you disappointed. You think you're finding security there? We're told in in, in church history. It's important, church history. A man named Eusebius. You should read it if you're interested in church history. Uh, If you don't, don't worry about it. But Eusebius is important to know church history. He wrote that before 70 A.D., all these Jews from all these parts of Israel started coming into Jerusalem because they feared that the Romans were going to come and conquer the countryside. And so they fled into Jerusalem thinking because the temple was there and and, and there were many Jews there that God will protect the city just like they did in the days of Hezekiah and in the days of other kings. And while that was happening, Christians were leaving Jerusalem. Because they believe that Jesus said, Jerusalem's going to be surrounded, it's going to be embanked, and it's going to be destroyed. Just like the prophecies of Daniel and of Jesus said the same thing. So the Christians began to leave. The Jews began to come in. And the, and the Christians began to flee to the mountains because that's what Jesus says. When you see Jerusalem surrounded, get out of there. And that's what they did. 
And there was a cousin of Jesus named Simeon who led them into a place called Pella. And that's where they hid while the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. So we know that church history has happened before that the Jews have ignored the warnings of God. But those Jews that believe what Jesus said, they fled. Remember, they were all Jews, by the way. They were all Jews. They were ones who believed in Jesus and the other ones who rejected Jesus. Same time, same thing in Amos' day. They were coming into these big cities only for Assyria to come in and eventually destroy those cities. So, um, by the way, it is a movement in our world today for this. You know what this is? Underground bunkers. Big sales today. People want them. Why would you want an underground bunker? What are you expecting? Well, people believe that, you know, the end of the world is coming or some kind of catastrophe is coming. So they're selling quite a bit of these bunkers, um, you know, complete with uh, entertainment centers and Internet and all this stuff, right? And you can find yourself in New Zealand and Hawaii and places like that, remote islands. You can buy these. You guys should buy them in California, military silos. You can buy old ones. Cost you a pretty penny because people want them. And you can grow your food underneath there. You can have all kinds of, you know, military equipment. You can have food. And people are going crazy for this because they see the trouble in the world. They see the safest place to be. They think it's underground. But, you know, people have always done this. New Zealand is a big place. People want to go there. Um, God says, Amos says, seek God and live. Look at verse 6. Seek God that you may live. Verse 4. Seek God or seek me that you may live. Why? Because the safest place to be is always in God's will. The safest place to be is always in God's will. It doesn't matter the geography. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the geography. In Christ is the best place to be. Paul was in the midst of a storm. He was going to be shipwrecked, but he was right where God wanted him. Stay the course, God told him. Stay the course. Even if you get shipwrecked, your life will be spared if you stay in. It's always about following God's direction for your life. And here, you, of course, our Lord Jesus, he gave himself up, turned himself over to wicked men, and they crucify him. But he trusted God. He trusted God that was going to keep him. It was the will of God that he would do that. And, of course, the resurrection was his ultimate escape. God did protect Jesus through the resurrection, not from death, but through death unto the resurrected life. So, again, it's one of those things that our country, what does our country trust in the most? Do we trust in military might, power, resources, economic power, right? And even religious power to a certain degree, right? Don't we have it in our money? In God we trust. That's the most nonsensical bunch of hypocrisy I've ever heard in my life. Why? Because we really don't trust God. We simply trust the idea that the money is somehow going to be used for, you know, we just want God to bless it for whatever we're going to use it for, right? But it's not really trusting God. It's simply trusting in ourselves and the military complex that pays for all this stuff, right? Or we pay for all this stuff, I should say. It's a bunch of nonsense and hypocrisy. Now, verse 6 says, He will break forth like a fire. God will, O house of Joseph, consume with none to quench it for Bethel, for those who turn injustice to wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. Why should they seek God? Why should Israel seek God? Well, you would think that they would be protected from the Assyrians, but who was the one that they should have been afraid of? God. See, when God is your enemy, that's a bigger problem. God can deal with the Assyrians. God can deal with the Babylonians. For a long time ago in our country, we said God can deal with the Russians. 
God could deal with the military might of the Chinese and all this stuff, right? But what if God is the enemy? What if we made God our enemy? And this is what Israel had done. They were so afraid of, you know, another country coming in. So they were going to these centers and they were doing all their worship. But it was really God who was against them because God's, look what it says in verse 7. He will break forth like fire. It's God who's going to bring forth the Assyrians. It's God who's going to be bringing judgment. And by the way, there's no sophisticated weapons that can detect God. I know we, uh, we marvel at our great sophisticated radars and systems and hypersonic missiles and all this stuff. But they can't detect God. They can't detect when God's approaching a nation and he's going to judge that nation. By the way, nations rise and fall according to their economic powers? No. Nations rise and fall because of society's problems? No. Nations rise and fall according to God's will. If a nation turns back to God, God gives grace and mercy, and that, and that nation is able to stabilize, and God is patient, very patient. But that if the nation turns away from God, then God will judge that nation. Make no mistake about it. The rise and fall of every nation is based on one person, God. And it's not arbitrary. It's based on the morality of the people, right? Righteousness exalts a nation, says Proverbs. But sin, what? What does sin do to a people? It's a reproach. It's a reproach to any people. So while we would think of, you know, hey, we have society problems, we have economic problems, we got military problems, the, the issue is not, not militarily, the issue is not economic, the issue is not social, the issue is spiritual. The issue is moral, the issue is spiritual and moral. And God is powerful. In fact, he tells them why. Uh, in fact, uh, Frankie, you, you have the mic still? Oh, you got it. Okay, can you do verse 8 and 9? This is how powerful God is. You really think that the Assyrians are the problem. How about the ones who controls all these things? Look at this. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them into and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress? God is so powerful, he controls the stars. Pleiades, that's one interesting one. You ever seen the Pleiades? It's one of the most beautiful constellations. Yeah, they're called the seven sisters, right? They're seven, seven stars that they're all bunched together. They're all close together. And they're called the seven sisters because they're so close together, closely related to each other. And... Uh, you look him up there tonight, and you can see, who, who, who made that? Such an amazing thing. Get a telescope. Go out there. Go to the Griffith Observatory. But now they have good ones. You can do it on your own balcony. Who put all those stars up there? God. He did. He also did Orion. You ever seen Orion? I got the other one there. Yeah. Go to the next one. Yeah, there it goes. Orion. Remember Orion's belt, right? Who put that up there? By the way, it's a good time to see Orion because uh, it's very visible around October. All through October is the brightest you'll ever see Orion. So you're going to see up there. You go up there. You go, take your kid up there. Take your grandkid up there and tell them, see that up there? Who do you think put that up there? Whoever it is is much more powerful than those stars because somebody had to put them up there. And it was God. And, and, and it's amazing. Amos you know, knows about astronomy here and there. He says, who made the Pleiades? Who made Orion? Bottom line, God made them. Do you think you have any... Any chance of defeating God, if he's able to do that, probably not. 
and the darkness, and the night, and the sea, and the waves. Who maintains all that? Just look at the book of Job. You can read Job on your own, especially from chapter 38 and on. It's wonderful how God maintains the order of nature. Did you know that who borders the, uh, well, the, there's, most of our world is water, right? And there's a point where the waters break, that there's, the water can only go up to so far. It's, it's called a shore. Well, who told the waters not to go any further than there? The psalmist said it was God. God told the sea, this is as far as you go. Now, obviously, there's disasters, there's waves, there's tides and stuff like that. But if there was no restraint on the ocean, it would just cover everything up. But God maintains the order of creation. God maintains the order of nature. And we're warned many times in the Bible. In fact, uh, you can, this can get into another whole other study. But you can, in, the, in the Bible, we know what happens at the end of history. All these earthquakes, all these calamities, all these disasters come. Why? Because Jesus said, these will be the signs before his coming. Read the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, that confirmed in the book of Revelation that such a state will be the state of the world. There would be famines, there would be earthquakes, there would t- terrible disasters will come, especially earthquakes, right? as well as famines and plagues and all kinds of just things that we never consider. Why? Because our world seems so nice right now. You know, we live in Southern California. The weather's fantastic. How can anything be bad? Well, the Bible says there will be. Yeah, the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, 25, of course, the church has a big problem because we don't read Matthew 24 and 25 anymore because all these pastors have told us that it's not for the church, it's for Israel, so they don't have to read it. What a great disservice, just like the Jews. You know the Jews are not allowed to read Isaiah 53? It's a curse on Isaiah 53 where you know, the, the Jews are told, don't read it. So all these kids never know about Isaiah 53. Well, what is in Isaiah 53? Do you know? Yeah, it's a suffering servant who comes and God punishes him. Well, God delivers him unto death. He is suffering, not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. And he dies and he bears the sins of many. And he resurrects, he comes back to life. Isaiah 53. They don't read it. Why? Somebody told them there's a curse. There's a curse in it. They, don't, they don't, also don't read Daniel 9, by the way. What's in Daniel 9? Go read it. Go read it. He'll tell you the Jews are, don't, are not able to read it. There's a curse in it. Of course, with the internet now, guess who reads them? A lot of young kids, a lot of young Jewish kids want to know, what's in there? How come the rabbi doesn't want to tell us about it? And many of them come to Messiah because of those two chapters alone. Those two, there's more, but there's two chapters alone. They're fascinating. But we repeat the same things with the church, don't we? Tell the church, oh, don't worry about Matthew 24, 25. Don't worry about Luke 21. Don't worry about Mark 13. Don't worry about Revelation. Now, we ought to worry about those things because it describes to us the coming of Jesus. Why would you tell some Christians not to read about the coming of Jesus if it's the glorious day? Well, we make the same mistakes. And cities like London and L.A. and Sydney and Toronto, they need to know about God's judgment. Why? Because those are wicked cities. They're terrible cities. And God says he's going to judge those cities. And if people don't read those chapters and don't know what's going what's to happen, then how can people ever be prepared? For what is going to happen? Oh, pastor, come on. You really think? Well, they said the same thing about Amos. Amos knows no way God's going to put us through that. And it happened. And it happened just as Amos said to the description, to the, to the actual details, right? And uh, by the way, in Revelation 6, go to the next one. Uh, Revelation 6, people are going to get so incredibly, incredibly desperate that they're going to say to the mountains 
end to the rocks, hide us, fall on us. It's interesting, they're going into bunkers nowadays, right? <laughs> it's, it's kind of what's going to happen. Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. From God and from his wrath. They're going to hide. They're going to try to hide, just like Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid from God. Well, sinful men will try to hide from God again, but it won't be of any good. It won't be of any good. When the Lamb comes, when Jesus comes, it will be visible to all. They will be naked and open to him whom they have to deal with. Now, a second vision. Look at verse 10 to 15. Somebody have that? 10 to 15. Let's read about his second vision. He has a second vision, and this time it's about law and order, which we so desperately need. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You shall have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, driving the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. All right. So the second vision has to do with the cities. It doesn't have to do with um, the stars or revealing who God is. It has to do with law and order in society. Now, what is law and order? We're simply the, the, the understanding that there's justice, there's righteousness in any city, in any law. In order for it to, to be complied or uh, for it to work, people have to comply it. Right? We have law and order in our nation. People, people need to follow the rules, follow the laws, right? And then everybody's happy accordingly, right? But what happens when society doesn't want to follow the law, doesn't want to follow the rules, doesn't want to follow the agreeable laws that they had in their land. Well, you get lawlessness. You get lawlessness. People don't want to follow it anymore. People have it within their hearts to be rebellious. And so law and order doesn't work if people in society are lawless. Now, here we have an example where it talks about the gates, at the city gates. Now, thanks to archaeological findings and history, we know that Justice, they didn't have courts like we do today. What they had was city gates, and you would go to the city gate, and by the way, you find, the, um, you find in the archaeological records, you find benches, you find records of where the people stood, where the, 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 the elders of the city would sit and listen, and so there would be, justice would be served there. And what you would find is as you would try to get justice there, you would find that the judges were all paid off. The bribes were already done. The hands were already greased. The palms were already filled. And the poor could not make any, could get any justice because they didn't have any money. And this is true in our nation. A man with money can pervert the justice. A man with money can get away with pretty much anything in our justice systems. Now, in verse 10, it says that they reprove the one who, uh, they hate him who reproves at the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Every now and then you had a man who stood up and said, hey, this should not be done. He would say, hey, this is the right thing to do is to uh, abide by the law and rebuke those who are lawless. But you know, instead of thanking God that they were a man like that, you know what they did? They abhorred him. They hated him. 
Why? Because he created a hostile work environment. <laughs> if you have somebody that stood up for righteousness and nobody else was righteous, uh, you stand out pretty quickly that um, you're, you're the only one that likes righteousness. And when you begin to tell people that they're unrighteous, it creates a hostile work environment. They don't want that. And so they kick them out. And so they hated those who brought reproof. They hated those who wanted law and order, who wanted justice, who wanted righteousness. You know, in our nation, we really don't want that anymore. Young people. I was talking to Chris earlier. Young people just rebel, rebel, rebel. And it's always been the case of young people rebel. Uh, but today, they don't even want any, any justice at all whatsoever. Their justice is the only ones that they want is the one that they think they should get. right? Justice. Perverted justice. And it's true today. They don't like the police. They don't like the justice system. They want to abhor anything that has to do with righteousness. They think it's, it's racist if you, if you uphold the law. A society doesn't want to be reproved. And if you stand up and say, hey, this is right and this is wrong, and they will call you a hater. They would say, You're the, who made you king? Well, none of us, but there's law and order established in our society, right? Established in our laws. Well, they had a higher standard because their laws came directly by the mouth of God. See, our constitution came through men who thought that, yes, the best way to be ruled was by, by men who were ruled by God. That is true. Israel had a higher standard. Their laws came directly from the lips of God, from the hand of God. God wrote it with his hand. So they had no, no uh, um, excuse to continue in their sin. In verse 11, he says, there's a God who is going to see the morality of people. He's a God of justice. And you know, when, when you're charging rent, it says, when you have impose heavy rent on the poor and exact the tribute uh, of grain from them, so when people couldn't pay the rent, uh, which was already high, California 2023, right? Uh, people, did, when they charged the rent and the people couldn't pay it, do you know what they asked for? Food. Oh, you can't pay it with money? Well, give me some of your grain. Give me some of your fish. Give me some of your food. And uh, that will be your tax on, on the rent you didn't pay. They were literally ex ex it was extortionists. You couldn't pay it, but you had to pay it with food that you needed it to live. But now they were taking away not only the money, but their food. And God says, well, you better enjoy your homes because you're not going to have them. You better enjoy what you have because you're not going to have them anymore. You're not going to have your vineyards. You're not going to have your home. Look at verse 11. You're not going to have those places to live, your hewn stones, your vineyards. And God knows the transgression of every single person and every personal sin that's ever done. The third vision Let's go to the, it wasn't just a justice. It wasn't just a moral breakdown. Well, it wasn't just a society's uh, uh, lawlessness. But now there was a breakdown of society that it was collapsing. It was collapsing in such a way that uh, you know, nobody understood why except for those who were watching and those who were listening to Amos. Verse 16 and 17 says, Therefore thus is the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, they're wailing in the plazas. And on the streets, they will say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning and the professional mourners to lamentation. And all of the vineyards are wailing because I will pass through the midst of the city, says the Lord. Society was collapsing because now it was a society under God's judgment. Who was passing through the city? It was the Lord. Now, in the midst of all this breakdown, though, I mean, society 
People have been saying, you know, our society is starting to look very, people that are not even Christians are getting very concerned. Um, if you Google, you know, I don't know if you guys Google search or a lot of things, but, you know, if you do, trending, you know, um, society collapse, how to get out of the city, uh, living off the grid. <laughs> people understand that to live in a big city, you take your life in your own hands. How to relocate. <laughs> Why? Because the understanding that it's not working. Society doesn't work anymore. Talk to Chris about the high schools up in the high desert. Talk to Jay about the, the, the places in L.A. and in Hollywood area. And this is just driving distance. San Bernardino, not too far from here. Places where people get robbed in plain daylight. And where's the law? And where's the nothing? Why? Because corrupt judges, corrupt attorney generals, corrupt uh, judges, and, and people that's supposed to be... Uh, like district attorneys, don't care. You serve, you know, you commit a crime, you get out the next day or 24 hours later. You, you're out, you're out of the, you're out of, um, not even parole. You just, you're just out in the street again. Nobody holds up the law. Now, this was not 2023, it was 750 BC. In the midst of this breakdown, though, there's hope. Did you see all these little things where he inserts, seek the Lord, seek the Lord? Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, uh, verse 4. Seek me, says the Lord. Verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Look at verse 14. Seek good and not evil. Now, what does he change that for? How does, why, did, why does he go seek God, seek God, and then he says seek good? Why does he change it? Is it something different that, he's, that we should seek after? Yeah. It's the same thing, isn't it? Well, when we seek God, we have to live with the reality that we seek to live good. Now listen to what Jesus said in his, uh, his sermon on the mount. He said, we're to seek first the kingdom of God. We all get that. And his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. It would be hypocritical that we say, I'm going to seek to, I'm going to seek God, but I'm not seeking to live good. I will seek God, but I'm not interested in living a moral lifestyle, right? I don't care about the sin and evil practices that I'm doing, but I'm going to seek God. A man who's not willing to have his sins forgiven and removed and straightened out is not a man who seeks God. Unless you're willing to be straightened out by the God that you're seeking, there's no point in seeking. Many people seek God. You go to jail. I've been, to, I've been there. People find that there's a lot of people that want, hey, I want God, I want God. They get out and go back to the same thing. <laughs> Why? They're not really seeking God. They may be remorseful of what happened, but they have no interest in seeking a good godly living. They don't want to be straightened out. We must seek after good. Frank said it right, because God is good, and he's a God of righteousness, right? And so the good that people, I guess people are seeking good, like, bless me, Lord, bless me. Give me the goods. <laughs> Not the good of morality. The God that you're seeking loves justice. So he expects you to be just. He loves righteousness. He expects you to be righteous. The wonderful thing about the message of the gospel is God has righteousness, has enough righteousness for the both of you. Even if you're not. He says, I know you're not. I will make you righteous as I am. Isn't that the gospel? Wonderful message. He's got enough for the both of us. You know, some people say, well, I'm so bad. God will never take me. No, he's good. He's more good than you're bad. 
He's more good than you are bad. And he will make you righteous if you seek him. All right? And so we did a study a long time ago. I can't remember when we did it. 2014, 2013. It's called the, Beware of the New Good. Beware of the New Good. Why? Because we live in a nation that just wants good. We just want good. For goodness sakes. But not God. Can you be good without God? I guess people try, don't they? They really try. They really try to be good without God. But it ultimately ends up in, in destruction. I'll prove it to you. Well, you know, there used to be a society here that our grandparents were godly. And their kids were good. Not many godly. They didn't pass on in our society. Maybe our grandparents were godly. But their children were not. Right? Our parent, grandparents went to church. They were deacons. They were elders. They were preachers. Their kids, well, they hardly went to church. Or well, they did go to church, but they weren't godly. Then they had kids. And because that godliness did not get transferred, only that goodness, you know, they were just being good, <laughs> but not godly. Then the grandkids weren't good. And then they wonder, how come it didn't get transferred? Because you weren't godly. You were just good. Yeah. The grandparents were godly. The parents were good. And the kids were not. Because unless you're godly, you're not going to be able to pass on any goodness to anyone. At least our grandparents were godly. They passed on goodness to the children. But unless those, those children became godly, there was be no chance for the grandkids to be good or godly. And that's what happened to our nation. God sees the wrong and wants to strain it out. People have to seek God for the, for, for the wrong reasons. I'll give you, you know, sin is powerful, right? But think about this. We talked about earlier, right, $33 trillion. There's people today saying, God, please get us out of our financial mess. God, please get us out of inflation. God, please get us out of this, you know, this horrible administration, Joe Biden's administration. God, get us out of there. God, help us to get rid of the Federal Reserve. God, get us get rid of this and this. But nobody says, God, please get rid of our sins. Help us to get rid of our sins, which is the reason why it's happening. God, forgive us for the babies we aborted. God, forgive us for the marriages we destroyed through adultery and homosexuality. Nobody says that. They just want out of the trouble. God, please, don't, you know, please help me out of my financial mess. But nobody says, God, I am the sinner that caused all this. I am the contributing factor to all this. So we have no right to ask God to get us out of trouble if we're not prepared to seek him in what is good. And what is God wants, God wants morality back in that society. He will help us out of trouble. He will. But he first wants to deal with our sin, the sin of the nation. And the sin of the nation, the sin of this nation, is very much before the eyes of God. So what's the real barrier why people don't want to seek God? What's the real barrier? Yeah. You know, I knew a young man, and this is a true story, not a pastor story, okay? This is a true story. I knew a young man. He was brought up in a Christian home. Parents were godly, and they knew a ministry uh, locally that knew me. They were having trouble with their kids. So this couple had a kid. And uh, this, they attended that ministry, and that ministry knew me, and they said, hey, you know, it's really a good idea to call them. I'm not sure why, but they called me, and they said, hey, can you help us with our, our, our son? He was a young man, early 20s. This is a while ago, so I was younger, and so I could relate to him in that way. So I talked to him, and, 
and a uh, very nice kid, but he wouldn't tell me, he would tell me this. He wanted to seek God, but could never find him. He wanted to seek God, but never find him. He wanted to draw close to God, but he never found him. Didn't know why. And he was seeking him, but he couldn't find him. And after a while, you know, he, he was kind of a, you know, kind of recluse. He didn't want to tell me much, but I talked to him. I met with him. I prayed with him. And after many whiles, he started liking me. So he started telling me about his personal life. In his teenage years, he experimented with sexual, sexually. He experimented sexually, and things got worse and worse and worse. He ended up in homosexuality, and he was living a homosexual lifestyle. He hadn't told his parents yet. So he was telling me, and he says, you need to tell your parents about this. You still live in their home. It would destroy them, he says. It would destroy them. And the relationship that he was in, God was not pleased, and he knew it. But he was seeking God, but he had no interest in leaving that relationship. I said, well, there's a reason why you're not, you're not finding God. Because you don't want to live, you don't want to leave the lifestyle that you live. And you, don't, you want to continue what he says it's wrong. Right? He was angry at me for a while. He didn't want to talk to me for a while. But after a while, you know, I grow on people, I suppose. He called me back. Now, I wish I could tell you it was a happy ending to the story. I don't know the ending of that story. Because he did stop talking to me. But he did tell me before he, he, he stopped talking to me that he did need to live a godly life. He did need to leave this, this sinful lifestyle that he was in. If he was ever to find God, he had to lay down those sins. And so there's no shortcut to God, by the way. There's no shortcut to God. You have to get past your sins. If we come to God, we need to leave our sins behind. There's no doubt, no doubt about it in the Bible. I wish I could tell you more of the story. I don't know what happened to the young man, but he knew. He knew that he knew that he needed to leave that lifestyle. And that's the reason he couldn't find God. That's the reason he couldn't find peace. That's the reason he was so completely destroyed in his life. Because he could not leave his sins. Now God would have taken it away from him. God would have forgiven him, restore him, get him back right, get him back right if he was willing. But he didn't want to at that time. But he knew it was right. He knew what was right. Now let's go to verse 18. Actually, yeah, verse 18, to, to, to the end of the chapter. Somebody can read to the end of the chapter. That would be great. Woe to, you, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. If a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him, is not the day of the Lord dark, darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of their songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an everlasting stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sukkoth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. All right. Now, we've got to pick up the pace a little bit because we're going to get to chapter 6, so I've got to finish this in about 15 minutes. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to see these woes coming up from chapter 5 here in verse 18 to chapter 6. There are three different woes. What does woe mean? 
Well, woe means it's not a blessing, put it that way. <laughs> woe doesn't mean a blessing. It means a curse. Oy vavoy, it's the, the Yiddish way of saying it. You ever heard Jewish people say oy vavoy? <laughs> oy vavoy. Yeah. It comes from this idea, woe upon woe, woe upon woe from the book of Joel. And you'll find that. It's on the, also in the book of Revelation. Woe, woe, woe. There's the woes of Revelation. I'm glad Jesus never said woe, right? Did he? Yeah, he did say woe. Now you understand what it meant when he said Woe, well, he said, blessed are the poor, but he said, woe to you, rich. I guess in an American culture, we don't like to say that because we're all rich in New Testament standards, right? Blessed are the poor, curse you to the ones who are rich. Now, God has no problem with believers that are, have money and wealth. It's about those who trust in wealth, those who trust in their money, those who... It's a lot harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Absolutely. Woe to you rich who don't care about the poor. What else did he say? He says, blessed are those who mourn. Woe to you who... Christians who don't know the Sermon on the Mount. Whoa. Woe to you who mourn. Sorry. Blessed are you who mourn. Woe to you who laughs. Woe to you who laughs. Was God against uh, having a good time? No, what did Jesus mean by that? Of course, he's meaning about the ones who don't care about what happened, who just go on life without just no concern. It's all good. Who cares? Ha, ha, ha. Laugh it off. Sin is funny. Destruction is funny. What happens to other people? It doesn't matter. Woe to you who laugh, who never concern about the difficult issues in life, who never mourn for anybody, who never have tears for anybody. Do you have tears for people? You have tears for people? You should have tears for people. Why? Because sin is so prevalent. And I'm sure there's unbelievers in your family. Do you mourn for them? Do you cry for them? Honestly, though. And if you're not, I'm not going to castigate you or punish you or anything like that, or this is not a guilt trip. But if you're not, ask the Lord why. Ask the Lord why. Why are my eyes so dry when I pray? with all the trouble in the world, with all the sin of the nation and the sin in the church, why are my eyes so dry? Why do I don't feel anymore? God will show you. If you want to know, he will show you. But he might give you a broken heart. And I don't think we want a broken heart. We want to laugh, don't we? We want to laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Come to church. Have a great time. Pastor, I'm never coming again. <laughs> no, this is what Jesus said. Woe to you who are uncaring, is what Jesus would say, who laugh it off like nothing happens. So it's the other side of blessing, isn't it? It's a warning. It's a curse. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, the cities. Three cities Jesus mentioned. Why? Because if the signs done in your city were done in other cities, they would have repented. Jesus did so many signs. Bethsaida, Capernaum. And they wouldn't repent. Jesus was right there. And I said, Nineveh would have repented. They only had Jonah. But you had Jesus. And they wouldn't repent. You know, those cities don't exist today. They don't. They don't exist today. Just like Jesus said, woe to those cities. I know we're getting into deep stuff, but this is reality, isn't it? They were trusted in their religious life. Notice in chapter 6 what Margie just read. I'm just summarizing it. They were sounding the songs of worship. They were singing because they had the sacrifices 
And they thought everything would be all right if we just bring it in. And you know what God said? This is literally chapter 5, by the way. He says, I hate it. I hate what you're doing. I hate that you're bringing it. I hate that you're bringing the sacrifice. This is strong language, isn't it? And for religious people, this would have been an upfront. It's like trying to tell people that like going to church and say, God hates you when you come. <laughs> Honestly, they would have been. The, can you imagine the boldness and the fearless of, of, of the fearlessness of Amos, telling a bunch of church people that love to come to church, love the gaiety, love the singing, love. God says He hates it when you come. He rather you not come. That's what God said to Amos or through Amos. You know, because people were saying, oh, we want the day of the Lord to come. Verse 19, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Why? Because they thought, well, they understood the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. And you know what they thought? Good, the day of the Lord is coming. They're going to get rid of all of our problems. They're going to get rid of the Assyrians. They're going to get rid of this, all these wicked nations. Come on, my Lord, come and just judge the place now. Amos says, don't wish for the day of the Lord. Why? Because the day is so heavy. He's coming after everyone who's unrighteous. So don't wish for it. He thought, they thought he was going to go after the Assyrians. Amos says, no, he's coming after you. So don't wish for the day of the Lord. Frank, you had a point? Yeah, what's up? No, I understand. People don't want to listen. Okay. I'm going to repeat what Frank said. Let me repeat what Frank's saying because I'm going to get hate email if, uh, if, you don't, if they don't listen to you, what you're saying. Frank's saying basically he's frustrated that he tells people the truth, but they don't seem to turn, and it's frustrated. Well, Frank, I can tell you this. There's a sermon that I preach here, and there's a sermon that I preach in my head on the way home. And the one on the way home always sounds better than the one I preach here. Just, that's, just my, that's just my head. But anyway, uh, the school, yeah, of course. Now, it's always them. It's always the Assyrians, right? God's going to come and judge them. God's going to come and judge them. You know, there's a lot of people that think that way in the conservative movement. A lot of Christians in the conservative movement. But I was, you know the National Day of Prayer breakfast that they have normally every year? Well, um, not too long ago, right? And um, the um, National Day of Prayer breakfast, right? And, you know, I used to, you know, when I was a young Christian, you hear this and you're like, oh, man, there's politicians that go up there and we're always praying. They're always praying, but they're always praying that God would bless them and God judges them, the other groups, right? Judge the Democrats, judge this. Now, the National Day of Prayer, no joke. A couple of senators got up and they said, well, it's so great to be here. Me and my, you know, me and my boyfriend got up this morning and, uh, out of bed and, uh, and came and we want to pray. <laughs> now, take, hold on. Nobody batted an eye. They said, oh, you're such a brave woman to come here after, you know, laying down with your boyfriend and coming here on a national parent, you know. And uh, another guy stood up and he says, well, you know, this is, you know, after my fourth marriage and, you know, and ha, 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 and, you know, divorces and left and right. And these are the conservatives. These are the ones that Christians would go, we need you in office so that you can strain out this mess. Ay, 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 oy, boy, boy. 
uh, it's always them. It's always them, right? How about us, us, us? I mean, I'm, I'm talking about in general, right? Um, these are the ones that I'm supposed to straighten out the mess? No. There's nothing to choose from. There's nothing to choose from. In regards to human nature and sin, it's all sinful. Now, Amos says it's like a lion. You're, you're running from a lion. If you, if you really want the Lord to come and judge sin and you're not righteous, it's like trying to run from a lion, which is hard to do. But even if you undertake that impossible task, you run into a bear. It's, it's kind of a humorous. Amos would have been sort of bringing up a humorous, serious joke here. And if you were able to get out of the bear, you run into your house and you said, ah, I got away from the bear. And you lean against the wall, then a serpent comes out of the stone, because in those days they didn't have, you know, drywall. They're just stone walls. And a, stone, and a snake would be sitting on that stone and comes out and bites you and you die. That's what it would be like to escape the day of the Lord. Meaning, there's no escaping. You want God to come? You want the Lord to deal with sin? Well, you better be righteous. And you're not. You offer sacrifices, and you think it's all great. But you know what? It's a great delusion. Your religion is deluding you. You know what delusion means? You think, you think something is real, but it's not. You think something's real, but it's not. There's a great delusion in religion. Thinking if you do the rituals, you do the thing, you come to church, you do your sacrifices, you're okay. God says, no, I find those offensive and loathsome. I find your songs unbearable. I don't want to hear them anymore. And God rejected them. Why? Because what God wanted was this, justice and righteousness. It wanted it to flow like a river. And it was the life of the Spirit. In New Testament terms, what Amos is saying is, God wanted the life of the Spirit in you running out of your life, the righteousness of Christ living in you like a river of living water flowing. Not a bunch of religious rituals and religious services. It doesn't help anybody. It only deludes you that I did right. You know what the worst thing you can do in church? is to come and think, because you came, you're all right with God. And you go home and you say, I did it. God, you owe me. I did it, you see? I went there. And it was, uh, I stood there and Pastor Mark taught for an hour and a half, so you owe me extra for that. That's what people think. And God says, no, you know what I want? I want righteousness in your life. I want you to stop stealing, stop doing drugs, stop sleeping around. That's what I want. I want you to treat others righteously. I want you to live godly. Stop causing division. Stop gossiping. Stop causing division among other believers. That's what he wants. Oh. You know what they said? Well, we've always been righteous, God, even at the times of the wilderness. Well, God says, no. When you were in the wilderness, you know what you were bringing around? I'm behind a little bit. Go to the next one. When you were in the wilderness, you know what you had around? This is an interesting thing because we're not told in Exodus this detail. Amos kind of gives you a little detail. They had the Ark of the Covenant. They were marching around, and they were following the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But you know what they had along with them? Idols. Could you imagine? God should have wiped them all out. And God is not me. <laughs> I would have done myself a long time ago. They had idols that were parading Syrian gods, Assyrian gods along the way. And they said, we love the Lord. Pagans. <laughs> we love God. And they had all these idols. And God says, I knew they were there. And you thought you were bringing offerings to me. You weren't. You weren't. You were following this foreign God. And so you love them so much, I'm going to send you to Damascus because that's what those gods were from. Verse 27. I'm going to send you there. You love them so much? Go follow them over there. Chapter 6. We've got to finish. The second woe. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Zion. Zion is, of course, the Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord where the temple was. Woe to you. 
who are at ease in science. What is he talking about? Complacency. Those who are at ease in science, complacency. He said, no worries, man. Hey, yeah, we know that there's problems. We know there's issues. $33 trillion, 63 million babies, homosexuality running rampant. Kids are being cut off. You know, their, their personal private parts are being cut off. School districts are allowing it. But you know what? I'm just going to stretch out a little more on my ivory bed. I'm just going to relax because it's time to relax. It's not time to pray. What's the problem? Why should we pray? You know what people think? Hey, we have a prayer meeting. Prayer meeting? What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. What should we have a prayer meeting for? Everything's good. <sighs> Ay, boy, boy. These are Christians we're talking about. The no worries kind of person. We need to pray. We need to pray for our government and our leaders and churches and pastors and leaders and society and your and unbelieving friends and family. But people like this, they don't want to know anything that's wrong. Oh, pastor, don't tell me anything that's wrong. I've been accused of that. I used to do these updates here. I'm like, we don't want them. You tell us everything that's wrong. Well, you know, what do you want to tell you? Lies? So our churches want to, they don't want to know anything. They want to be at ease. You know what this sounds like? The book of Revelation has a church that was just like that. Chapter 3 is called Laodicea. In Greek, Laodicaemi. If you know Greek, you kind of know what that means. It means people, Laodicaemi, opinions. It was the church where people had their own opinions about things. Well, I think that you shouldn't talk about sin. And I think that... We should have shorter services. And I think that we should have less judgmental <laughs> attitudes. Well, I'm all for that, but the right kind of judgment is good. What people mean is don't talk about sin. And you shouldn't mention hell, and you shouldn't mention repentance, and shouldn't mention sin. And I think that God is not like what you say it is. And we're preaching right out of the Bible, but people don't believe it. That's people's opinions, right? Laodicea. What did Jesus say about Laodicea? It is so awful. The Son of God abhorred them to the point where it made him vomit. This was a church. This wasn't the Satanist. This wasn't the, you know, the Satanist bikers club or anything like that. This wasn't the pagans. It was a church that were committed to Jesus Christ. They thought. He said, you're blind, you're poor, you're wretched, you're naked. But you think you're rich. You think you could see. The worst thing about Laodicea is that people thought that they could see. That's the worst form of deception, self-deception. You know, if somebody deceives you, that's one thing. God can show you the truth. If you are the one deceiving yourself, whoa. God can show you the truth, but you must be willing to see the truth. People's opinions, they were secure. They were rich. They were wealthy, and they had no room for God, no room for Jesus. Where was Jesus in this church? Was he in the center of the church? No, where was he? <laughs> they kicked him out. He was trying to come back in. Can you imagine? Could you imagine? I mean, I would die. Literally would die. I'm not so self-righteous person, but if Jesus was demanding this church, I would die. Literally would. I'd be like, forget it. Here are the keys. I want nothing to do with this. Why? Because if Jesus is not in charge, then who is? <laughs> Us? People's opinions? Forget it. I want the word of God. That's what I want. But look at verse 3 real quick of chapter 6. Do you put off the day of calamity and you bring near the seat of violence? You know what they were doing? The day of calamity is a day of disaster. They were saying, 
nothing bad's going to happen. We know judgment one day. I mean, yeah, yeah, the book of Revelation says that. But one day is going to happen. But I'm sure it's really, 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 really far off. Really far away from us. So they think. Paul said about the book of Romans, about the people that thought like that, they said they know the judgment against those sins is true, but they not only encourage it, not only allow it, but they encourage sin. Romans 1.27, they encourage sin. They know, people know that there's a judgment. People know there's a sin. They just don't want to talk about it. Sinful man does not want to talk about it. They put it off. It's some, it's, you know, someone's going to deal with it at some point in history, but not us. The Bible says it is appointed man to die once and then to judgment. Not to happiness, to judgment. You're only happy if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in him, then, then there's glory. But to every single other person, it says for them to die and then to judgment. And even Christians are going to find judgment at the beam of seat of Christ. We're still going to stand before Christ and give an account for what we did in his name. Nobody gets away with it. Of course, our sins were paid for on the cross. But even then, we're going to have to stand before God and, and give an account. Now, he says to them, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm just going to finish here. Because what's behind it all? Look at verse 8. The Lord said, has sworn by himself, the Lord God, the host of Israel, uh, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe, strong word there, I hate, the pride of Jacob. Behind it all was pride. Behind it all was pride. Just like sin. I in the middle was pride. I in the middle. Always think of that. Sin has you in the middle. Well, it literally has I, but you see yourself in that. And has pride does too. Sin does too. God hates the pride of these people because they did it. They were insane. Society was so insane. They were so insane they did think everything that they did was insanity. They couldn't make any sense of it. They would be utterly insane to, do, to allow the things that they were allowing and to say that it was just. It was insane. And look at my society. Look at the society my kids grew up in. I look at my generation and go, we are insane. We don't even know what a woman and a man is anymore. At least not willing to admit it in our society. We have a, a Supreme Court justice that doesn't even want to admit it, doesn't even know the difference. Amos says, come back to God. When you're in that situation, come back to God. Why? Because God is willing to forgive. Now, he's in verse 14. This is the end of chapter 4. I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Assyria is coming. Make no mistake about it. It's coming. Assyria is going to make ways. But if we seek God, you will live. See, in the midst of all this trouble, it's the message that God will wants to restore his people. Four points. Next point. Next slide. Who are they dealing with? Just to kind of encapsulate it all. Who were they dealing with? They were dealing with the God who speaks personally. Notice this. It wasn't some God far away, some general idea of God. You know, when you mention to Americans about God, that's what they think. The God who's just like, overall God, you know, nothing personal about it. Amos uses the word God here and the word Yahweh specifically because that's his name. You know, Yahweh is his name. He had different titles, but the, the, the actual personal name of God, 
is Yahweh. Now, in the New Testament, we know him as Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, has come, the Son of God. But in the Old Testament, it's always been, remember when Jesus says, I am, he was saying this, Yahweh. It's me, the unpronounceable name of God. It's a God who speaks personally. He also shows himself as the God of hosts. Number two, the sins he sees are personal sins. You know why that's important? Because God knows the transgressions, and he knows there are many. But he doesn't deal with the sins in general. He deals with your sins personal. You know the ones you have, the ones that nobody knows about? He knows them, and he wants to deal with them. But the foolishness is to think that he doesn't see it. You know where that came from? A great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve. Notice this. They sinned. Was God there? They didn't see him, so they sinned. And they were shocked to find out when God said, what have you done? Wait a minute, you weren't there. Oh, yes, I was. You see the point? Whenever we sin, God's there. There are no secret sins. Between you and God, no secret sins. He knows them. And he expects us to do something with them. Why? Because the judgment he promises, all through the book of Amos, and especially chapter 5 and 6, we're dealing with the God who will judge. And you know how specifically the judgments are? Notice when you read Amos, I know we didn't do too much in chapter 6, but chapter 5, you get the point. He not only told them that there was judgment coming, he described them, how they were going to come, how they were going to overthrow the city, how Bethel, Gilead, Samaria, Beersheba are not going to be around anymore. He described no vineyards, no houses, your ivory couches are going to be gone. Why so many details? Anybody? Why, why, why got to give? Well, he does. But what does it mean to them when they know so many details? Yeah, it, it, they would know specifically that this was the judgment of God. It wasn't some random event that happened. God said, this is what's going to happen. You know what's, incidentally, and you should be terrified. I'm telling you this for sure. You should be terrified of reading the New Testament. Why? Why should you be terrified about reading the New Testament? Because it announces not just judgment, but eternal judgment. It announces with great specificity, specificity, yeah, specificity, the way the judgments are going to be. It actually announces that there will just be general judgments, but how the judgments are going to be rendered. People are going to be hiding in caves, running away from God. They'll be so fearful. And everyone will be naked and open before God meaning accountable to God. And the, and the Bible says all the books are going to be open, Revelation 20, and everybody will be judged according to the sins in those books and, and it's going to be known. And the Bible says the smoke of their torment shall rise forever and ever before God and before the Lamb. And everybody's going to know consciously the pain of judgment, not only the everlasting fire, the place where the warm never dies, the place where there's outer darkness, the place where there's outer uh, darkness and fire and burning, and there'll be no relief. This is why I'm telling you, you should be terrified. Because that New Testament that you love so much actually describes in details the actual judgment God's going to bring to humanity because of their unrepentance and their sin and all their immorality and all their godlessness. And it describes it in plain terms. Why? So you know that God does not mince words. And the ungodly need to come to the knowledge of that. The ungodly need to come to godly fear of the God who describes not only that there'll be judgments, 
but there will be judgments in detail and that no one will escape. Or can anyone escape? Number four, can you go back to the previous one? He does require an action, does he? In the midst of all that, he requires an action. What is the action? God speaks. God sees the sin. God promises judgment, but he doesn't leave you without a way out. The great God of judgment, Sister Amos, a sinner must do something. The God who speaks, it says, a sinner must turn back. A sinners, a sinners must hate sin. They must love good. They must return back to the Lord and seek and seek and seek again and again and again. And what does the word seek the Lord means? It's a beautiful word. In Hebrew, it's the word daresh. Seek the Lord, daresh. It literally means to create a path or to, to beat a path. Meaning that there's no room, there's no way to go up this path and you actually make one, make a path. And you actually go and apply yourself to this path that you created. And this path leads back to God. Seek the Lord. Now eventually the word seek eventually became something of asking. Of an asking. There's only one thing a sinner needs to do when it's under judgment. Turn back from sin. Turn back to God. Find the way back to God, the path that has been made. And there's a door that's going to be open. And that door leads to Calvary's cross. And that door is where you begin to stand as a sinner before Jesus Christ. And that path is what Jesus described in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Seek the Lord and live. Yeah, that path. Seek the path. Not only seek the path, but apply yourself to the path and ask God, the God who forgives, the God of great judgment is the God who great forgiveness. Remember the woman who stood before Jesus and had caught in adultery? And Jesus said, I do not condemn you. The first thing God does is never to judge the sinner, at least at this point in time. The gospel is to bring the sinner to God, correct the sinner from sin, and help the sinner turn back from sin to God. That's the first thing the Son of God does. Doesn't condemn the sinner, doesn't judge the sinner. Oh, yes, eventually, yes, he will. But now it's time to seek the Lord. Because if sinners stood before Jesus, Jesus would seek the forgiveness of that person, the restoration of that person. And every man and woman in our society needs to know that and listen that there's no fear for a sinner to stand before Jesus Christ. Oh, there's great fear of God, absolutely. But God sent Jesus so we can find our way back to him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this book because it literally balances us out. We could be so heavy on one side that we could be wrong on the other side. We can be so heavy on the judgment side, we forget that God sent his son to set us free from sin and to get us back to himself. And we get so enamored with just the forgiveness of God and the love of God that we forget that there's justice and righteousness that God requires. Oh, Lord, how do we balance that out? The cross. The cross of Jesus is where sin was dealt with. The righteousness and justice and the wrath and the anger of God upon sin, upon Jesus, as he bore the sins of many. And the love of God, the love and the mercy and compassion that God has for sinners, 
in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way to God. Seek God and live. And Lord, I pray that we can hide ourselves, hide ourselves not from you, but in you. Not hide from God, but hide in Christ, the rock of ages. We praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know the final one? There it is. You know that song, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me? Let me hide myself in thee. It's a wonderful song. And I pray God's grace that we can sing it. I don't know if we, anybody knows those words, but you know it's wonderful? In the last days, Book of Revelation says people will hide in the rocks, away from God. The calling of God today for God's people is to hide ourselves in him. Not from him, in him. And you'll find yourself a refuge. A refuge that has no boundaries. A refuge that has no limitations. Jesus Christ. By the way, he is a, a, the rock had a, had a cleft. Remember that? And Moses was in that cleft. It's the rock. We you know what a cleft is in a rock? Yeah. It's an indenture. Basically, somebody basically put a hole in a rock. And that's where Moses was put in. It's a picture of the cross, isn't it? Jesus was afflicted. The rock was beaten. The rock had holes. And in those holes, the Messiah suffered. The Lord puts us in there. And we could see the glory of God. We could see God walking by. As Moses said, he saw the afterglow. Well, we have more than that, huh? Because of the Holy Spirit, we have not only the glory of God in us, but the power of God. We can know God intimately. We can know more than what Moses saw that day. And one day, we will see him face to face. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Oh, that hole, that rock that was smitten. Praise God for that rock that was smitten. Because that's where my salvation was purchased. Let me hide myself in thee. If you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, if you know people that don't know Jesus Christ tonight, you ought to be praying and weeping for them. And I don't mean that to be super religious or super spiritual. I'm not. I'm telling you, my kids are here. They know I'm not this crazy spiritual, crazy person. But I do know what's in store for all those who love Jesus Christ, eternal glory. But also the same Bible tells me the eternal destiny of those who don't trust in Jesus Christ. And so I make it my life effort and attempt to make everyone know, not only to the church to build them up, but to the unbelievers to fear God. Because there's only one way anyone's going to get out of here. (laughs) Jesus. Just like you, just like me, there's only one way out of this mess. This whole mess that was created, there's only one way out. If you have Jesus, you got yourself out. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to provide one. But so is his great mercy, isn't it? So the book of Amos challenges us. The book of Amos brings us to the point where we're desperate for the cross. We're desperate to run to John 3.16. And that's what it's supposed to make you do. It's supposed to make you realize God is not a God that we mess with. God is personal. God is holy. God is good. God sent Jesus, but God is going to deal with sin. Now, for 2,000 years, God has sent us the message of Jesus throughout the whole world. So nobody has to endure the wrath of God. Yes, sir.